It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hello, inhabitants of the universe that we call Kubrick's. In today's episode, we will delve into the Anthony Burgess novel from 1962, which Kubrick would go on to adapt for the screen in 1971. We're talking, of course, about A Clockwork Orange. Yes, we are still celebrating 50 years of A Clockwork Orange. I think Stephen is getting a little bit obsessed with it. Anyway, stick around for the introduction, and we will be telling you about how you can get involved with the show. So, Simon Fay is a writer and video essayist, author of multiple novels. He also runs the YouTube channel Content Lit, where he discusses the best books of the 20th century. As a stalwart Kubrick fan, his latest series, Kubrick's Books, takes a deep dive into the director's work and into the novels that inspired him. So settle down and get ready for Simon's essay on Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. Sometime after the completion of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick had finalised his screenplay adaptation of A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess when he became aware that the copy of the book from which he worked was actually an abridged American edition, one chapter shorter than the British. Of discovering the chapter's existence, Kubrick remarked that he never seriously considered adding it to his screenplay and even went so far as to imply it was superfluous. But by omitting it from his picture, it's possible that he gutted the story of Anthony Burgess's original intent. Specifically, the idea that a delinquent thug named Alex, whose crimes are charted across both versions, is capable of choosing good. As it happens, the violent dystopia of A Clockwork Orange was partly inspired by an attack upon Burgess's wife, who was assaulted by a group of American soldiers and suffered a miscarriage as a result. So it's significant that in the final pages of his novel, he would offer those men the possibility of redemption, and understandable that he'd resent such an effort being written off. Even so, though much of the story found its beginnings in his very personal views on morality, there was also a certain amount of paranoia that would find expression in both the pages of the book and Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of the material. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that in America, without doubt, there are forces which uh, never achieve the uh, incarnation of an aim, never appear on television, never appear in the press, uh, are not subject to a cult, as, say, the president or the vice president is, and yet are conceivably uh, running the country. Deke, it sounds rather spooky. Uh, Is this this, uh, an impression, or is this... um something concerning which you have, uh, you, you can come forward with some sort of an empirical... Uh, uh, unfortunately. Well, I, I may uh, allow me to shelter behind the fact that I'm a comparative stranger here. I'm an Englishman. I'm not American at all. Uh, I uh, cannot claim uh, any uh, exact knowledge of how America is run. Uh, I have to rely to a great extent on impressions. These impressions are vague. These impressions are insubstantial. 
but it's, it's an impression which I'm prepared to throw at people very frequently and say, come up with some counter to that, impre to that impression. Uh, on the whole, um, people tell me it is true. They have a feeling that it is so. Whether you've read A Clockwork Orange or not, chances are you're familiar with the language from it. NADSAT, as Anthony Burgess dubbed it, is a form of speech utilised by his subculture of delinquent teens that borrows some words from Russian and is also influenced by British Cockney rhyming slang. In this way, the lead character Alex refers to his close friends as droogs and to money as pretty Polly. The overall effect is surreal, but it's had the long-term benefit of helping the book to become timeless. The novel is set in a kind of near-future society, you see, but it was published in 1962. If Burgess had utilised the actual vernacular of that time, it would have aged his story badly. Instead, rather than take the literal words from 1960s youth culture, he borrowed the spirit of them. That is, he created a language to show how a generation of 15-year-olds could cement a bond within their ranks, exclude authority figures, and that in the context of their fictional world demonstrates their growth out of adolescence as a generation of even younger teens come up behind them with their own mangled form of the English language. Moreover, A Clockwork Orange is written in the first-person perspective, so Natsat isn't just something you're exposed to in snippets of dialogue. The entire book is so dense with it, in fact, that it can feel a little impenetrable until you begin to parse its meaning and actually feel more immersed in the story as a result. Though to say that this is all the NADSAT language adds to the novel is an understatement. What's it going to be then? It's a question Alex hears at the beginning of A Clockwork Orange and is asked a dozen times more in the course of events. At the outset, it refers to what he would like to drink, but as he looks across the bar, it's apparent that the question is a lot more loaded than that. For starters, the drinks they have to choose from are all different forms of milk, laced with drugs that will either fuel their violence or send them on artificial religious trips that would leave them tranquilised where they sit. Alex loads the latter option, disgusted by the broken individuals who've given themselves over to the sorry state. What he finds beauty in is the active destruction of the world. As such, when he and his fellow droogs knock back their poison of choice, it's with the goal of assaulting numerous people. On the street, they attack an elderly scholar and rip apart his books. At a local shop, they don the masks of historical and popular figures such as Henry VIII and Elvis, demonstrating a further perversion of culture before they brutally attack the shop workers and consider violating an elderly woman as she lays disabled on the floor. Throughout it all, Alex celebrates the sight of blood in orgasmic delight, which you could certainly think is the reaction of a clinical psychopath, but might not be too far off the thinking of an actual delinquent teen. This is because as adolescent males develop, many show a temporary decline in cognitive empathy between the ages of 13 and 16. Now, obviously most kids don't go around committing acts of such frightening violence, but it does bring to mind Alex's detachment from the consequences of his actions. To this end, the Natset language is also utilised to demonstrate his mental state, in that when he refers to events that would make anybody else break down in tears, he just refers to the sadness of them as boo-hoo-hooing. Moreover, whenever he refers to seeing blood, he actually uses the word vidi, which you could take as an abstraction of the word video, and that points to the flat media-like interaction he has with the world. Really, the people in it are just characters for him and his friends to torture through a screen of their adolescent haze, and if they're ever lectured on how what they're doing is wrong, they merely laugh it off as irrelevant to the fact that they're having fun. 
Cigarettes, for example, are referred to as cancers, which show how they're aware of tobacco's effects but smoke it anyway, heedless of the notion that they should care about their futures at all. In general, you could refer to this attitude as petulant, but it's a trait that they accept with pride, adopting yet more baby-like lingo into their dictionary of slang so that jam becomes jammy-wham and apologies become appy-polylogies. This, along with the milk they drink, is a clever way of drawing attention to the toddlerish aspects of their behaviour over the more macho-oriented qualities you'd usually associate with their crimes, and which Burgess further emphasises in his version with the oversized shoulder pads they wear, and that Alex himself describes as a mockery of having real shoulders. It all just contributes to a subversion of the responsible, manly persona society expects them to adopt, and reminds me a little of how the Sex Pistols used to act in interviews, though I suppose that would be more a case of life imitating art than of art imitating life. Which what? Nothing, a rude word. Next question. Nonetheless, while Alex might insist on retaining some childish qualities, he is on the verge of adulthood, as the question at the beginning of the chapter implies, in that the assaults he commits are what he chooses to do and will result in serious repercussions. In another way, you could also take the infantile talk as Burgess making fun of teenagers for hiding behind such idiotic slang. In interviews, he actually stated he was disgusted with the cultural illiteracy of young people in general. As such, the book includes countless references to famous operas and other classical pieces, but many of them are fictitious, which I didn't realise at first and so took to mean that Burgess was lampooning any ignorant readers like myself who might have accepted the fact of their existence without further investigation. Worse still, as Alex constantly refers to us as his brothers while he narrates the tale, Burgess makes us complicit with the boy as we too choose to continue reading, a point which is underscored when Alex promises us yet worse things to come. Now, it's a quirk of human psychology that most people like to witness acts of destruction. In the introduction of the book, Anthony Burgess himself admits to have taken pleasure in writing some of the more despicable scenes, though it has to be said, in other interviews he claims that the process made him feel sick. Regardless, the fact that people enjoy violence is something he knew to be true. Horror and action movies allow audiences to revel in it as enthusiastically as the droogs do, without fear of causing actual harm. Combative sports get crowds of people to jump out of their chairs with excitement. And car crash entertainment, as the popular phrase goes, indicates how in day-to-day -day life we're compelled to stop and watch a disaster unfold. Say what you will about the corrupted mindset behind all this, but I think that as I read A Clockwork Orange, when Alex said there would be more violence, I for one felt tantalised at first, taking it as a challenge to see the story to its end, then appropriately defeated before I got halfway through. In point of fact, as the book continues, it doesn't take long for Alex to make good on his word. He and his fellow droogs fight a rival gang who are in the process of assaulting a 10-year-old girl. He gives one of them a nasty Cheshire smile. They beat a homeless man who laments that civilization could advance to the point where there are literally men in orbit of the earth while chaos is allowed to reign below. And, most interestingly, they break into a writer's house who, in a meta twist, is working on a text called A Clockwork Orange and who shares the name of Alexander, which makes him both a father figure who literally created our protagonist and a doppelganger for what Alex could be if he left his life of crime behind. Funnily enough, in real life, Burgess was routinely asked what the title of the novel means, but for anybody who was genuinely curious, the answer was always right there, explained by the stand-in Burgess himself. A Clockwork Orange refers to 
the attempt to impose upon man, a creature of growth and capable of sweetness, laws and conditions appropriate to a mechanical creation. It's an early foreshadowing of the major theme of the book that, in essence, posits if Alex was to be robbed of his ability to choose, he would also be robbed of his ability to grow beyond evil, thereby making him nothing better than a machine. It's an intriguing thought for Alex to consider who often seems drawn to intellectual ideas, but he's still a lot more interested in his own immoral view of life, which he sums up for one of his fellow droogs as believing that whatever world in the galaxy a creature might live on, it will always be broken up into two camps of people with one group getting knifed and the other doing the knifing. Consequently, in a scene that mirrors what happened in reality, the author's wife is assaulted by a gang of droogs. It's a vile turn, even for a book that has already provoked the reader a handful of times. However, it's yet another example of what Burgess had in mind when he created the Nadsat language. The attack on the author's wife is couched in the bizarre vernacular of the youths, like, for example, when her groodies are described as exhibiting pink glazies. As a result, rather than get a beat-by-beat -beat account of how these two innocents are violated, it's through a fog that we understand exactly what's happening until Alex sums up in plain English just how bad a state their victims are left in, which at such an early stage of the story forces us to ask why Burgess would want to expose us to such disturbing subject matter. To begin with, you might wonder if the point of the narrative is to root out the motivations of these evildoers. The book showcases a world where the state is a soulless entity that exists to exercise whatever petty control it can over its citizens. Given that much of the British youngsters' slang has been taken from Russian, you can also interpret the language's use as a sign that the Soviet Union of this world has spread its tyrannical influence to the UK. Alex's mother, for example, is legally required to work at a state mart, while Alex himself is hounded by a post-corrective officer who only wants him to go to school so that the boy won't become a black mark on his record. At the same time, there is clearly some kind of free market at work. The media blitzes Alex with advertisements for high-tech products that he has no interest in, alongside news stories about war, sports personalities, strikes and other forms of ultra-violence. To put it bluntly, from society's perspective, it seems that Alex is just an errant body that they want to reclaim whether it be through government coercion or capitalist temptation. As a result, you might say that such a materialistic civilization is doomed to be riddled with thugs of Alex's type, but then, as Alex himself asks, nobody wonders what makes a good person good, so why should they wonder why he's bad? Badness, after all, is a part of his self, so by denying him the option to express it, they are actually denying the right for anybody to have a self at all. On top of that, regarding any of the more compassionate ideas regarding his behaviour, he only laughs at adults who insist that his amoral ways can be put down to the conditions in which he was raised. And furthermore, while history is full of rebels who made it their business to fight the machine in a similar fashion to the droogs, that has nothing to do with his delinquency. He says that he engages in antisocial behaviour simply because it's what he likes to do. On that note, Burgess once again begins to challenge the reader with yet worse atrocities than what we've been exposed to so far. At a record store, Alex picks up a pair of 10-year-old girls, gets them drunk, and assaults them in his bedroom. Afterwards, he breaks into an elderly woman's house and attempts to do the same, but ends up beating her to death instead. It goes without saying that any right-thinking person would be repulsed by either of these crimes. Nevertheless, with depressing awareness that there are indeed people who wouldn't be, Burgess once again couches the material in a gauze of the Nadsat language. 
In this way, the extent of Alex's violation of the children isn't fully digestible until they come to tears and curse him as they leave. And while the attack on the old woman is played to comic effect, it really seems to be as a reminder that we're volunteering to continue spending time with Alex, given that much of it is interspersed with nudges and winks from him, as he refers to us as his brothers and to himself as our humble narrator. On one level, I expect some readers might have been angry at Burgess and blamed him for what they were taking an interest in. Other people might have had a more introspective sense of disgust. But at its worst, I think what really makes it difficult to get through is when you realise that we're not just complacent with reading Alex's actions in the book, we're complacent in ignoring how it's happening in the real world right now. Essentially, what's it going to be then isn't just a question addressed to Alex. It's directed at his parents who turn a blind eye to his criminal endeavours. It's directed at a group of old women who could rat him out to the police, but don't for fear of putting themselves in danger. And it's directed at us, the readers, as we're challenged on what should be done with such a hopeless malcontent. Still, while it would appear that all of these moral compromises are the result of a society that has fallen from grace, Alex does at least begin to face some consequences. Having upset his gang of droogs, he's shocked to discover they've arranged for him to be arrested. It's a turn of events that Alex and his father actually had a dream about, which is interesting for how in a story that will ultimately ask if Alex can choose good, it also appears to be a question if there's any choice in the universe at all. And, aside from the final chapter, the dream and others like it are easily the most conspicuous omissions from Kubrick's version of the tale. The opening shot of the first Clockwork Orange adaptation sees a slow zoom out from the main character's face. It was directed by Andy Warhol, six years before Stanley Kubrick created his own version of the story in which he chose to begin the film in the same way. Given Kubrick's dedication to research, it's possible he knew about the existence of Warhol's much more obscure version of the story, but I think it's all the more likely a coincidence, which for me brings to mind the director David Fincher's comment that there are maybe two ways to shoot any given scene, and the other one is wrong. In spite of that, the shot is notable in Kubrick's filmography for being what most people would agree was the first time he truly honed the Kubrick stare, a facial expression characterised by the downward slant of an actor's forehead, coupled with the crack of an unhinged smile, and that you could actually argue was first spotted in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. You could interpret this as Kubrick taking the baton from Psycho, in that while that film ends with the knowledge of just how unhinged its villain is, A Clockwork Orange begins with that knowledge. Though, generally speaking, Kubrick didn't really engage with other directors' work in such ways. In other words then, even when Kubrick constrained himself to using the same ideas as somebody else, he found a way to make them his own. Indeed, there's another shot in Kubrick's version of A Clockwork Orange in which Alex comes across a music collection that includes a piece from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, in a similar manner to how he managed to own most aspects of his film work, Kubrick often had a strong enough vision that whatever novel he adapted, his version would tend to usurp that of the original authors. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. For instance, however successful his adaptation of Lolita was with critics of the day, it's undoubtedly a much shallower version of Nabokov's more nuanced tale. And Stephen King's The Shining also has plenty of reasons to be considered a more realistic take on the nature of abuse than Kubrick's spin on the material. With A Clockwork Orange, though, the adaptation is usually thought of as one of the instances where the director managed to make a slight improvement on the source material, if only for abandoning that chapter which many people still believe was unnecessary to include. 
That said, I think the comparison between the two versions is more complicated to the extent that it's worth examining how some of the smaller details diverge as the movie plot progresses. As Alex is arrested, his journey towards becoming a more reliable cog in the civilization machine takes another lurch forward when he's locked away and assigned a prisoner number. Justice appears to have been served. All the same, no matter how badly his character has acted in the film, we don't really have as much reason to be disgusted with him as we do in the book. To be precise, the ten-year-old girls in the novel became a pair of teenagers for the screen, and the scene in which Alex assaults them was changed to be a more titillating consensual threesome. Likewise, the elderly woman who he murders in the book was aged down to a more attractive 50-year-old woman, which, while certainly no less of a crime, at least makes the sexual aspect of it slightly less shocking. What's more, because Kubrick actually had to film all of Alex's actions, he was unable to hide the viciousness of them behind the gauze of NADSAT wording, so instead, he aged up the delinquent character with the casting of Malcolm McDowell and seemed to make all the madness a little more palatable for an audience to sit through by choreographing everything in an over-the-top theatrical manner. Sure enough, though this choice resulted in a nightmarish quality of its own, you could still say that in order to make the so-called unfilmable novel filmable, he had to change its most unstomachable scenes to be entertaining, which had the unfortunate effect of creating what Burgess tried to avoid. Pornography. Despite this, the movie does at least seem to use this fact to challenge the audience in much the same way that the book does. You know you're not supposed to enjoy the horrible things Alex does. You may really be sickened by them. But you're compelled to watch it all unfold anyway, a fact that Kubrick was assuredly aware of, having reportedly laughed at Malcolm McDowell's improvised rendition of Singing in the Rain as he acted out the attack on the author's wife. Still and all, it's a safe bet that when Alex is sent to prison, the average audience member would only feel like he's received his just desserts. In the book, this is explored in a series of scenes in which he's abused by the police and prison staff. When they're confronted about this, they defend themselves by saying violence makes violence, thereby deflecting the accusation back at Alex and wholly missing the irony that the harshness of the system helped to create him. Further to that, both the film and the book speak to the reciprocal relationship between criminals and authority when the prison chaplain asks the new inmates if they intend to fall into a pattern of in and out, which, being NADSAT lingo for sex, highlights how the correctional facility itself births yet worse offenders. It's in the book alone though this is more directly underscored when Alex is also assaulted in his cell and betrayed by his fellow inmates. But for the sake of a more streamlined experience, the film strips much of this away to focus on the officially sanctioned procedures that the system has to rob an inmate of their humanity, though I wouldn't suggest that the Alex of Kubrick's clockwork mechanisms doesn't suffer too. Prison is a mind-numbing experience for Alex with little in the way of reason to reform. The one authority who seems to be genuinely concerned about him is the prison chaplain who offers religious salvation as a means to becoming a good person, and though Alex seems outwardly interested, internally we see that his warped mind has corrupted the lessons of the Bible to sate his own perverted desires. Alex in both versions is also an enormous fan of the composer Ludwig van Beethoven, so, along with music, we're given to understand that these so-called forms of high culture cannot rescue anybody from their base inclinations and are actually more in danger of being repurposed by the people who enjoy them. This is a belief Kubrick seems to have shared with Burgess, having said of film that it's the feel of the experience that's important, not the ability to verbalise or analyse it. 
for all that though, he does at least allow the chaplain to directly communicate the moral question at the heart of the story, even if Alex of the movie is never really emotionally stirred by its implication. The question is whether or not this technique really makes a man good. Goodness comes from within. Goodness is chosen. When a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. It could say that the question itself relates to an older one, are criminals born or are criminals made? However, with the field of psychiatry's intense focus on these two ends of the spectrum over the course of the 20th century, Anthony Burgess identified a new take on the team in that of the question, if a person could be forced to be good, would they really be a good person? To a large extent, it's an abstract problem because in reality, there just aren't any methods to truly constrain a human being to only act in a moral manner. But since this is a science fiction story, both Burgess and Kubrick were able to explore it through a fictional therapy known as the Ludovico Technique, which essentially conditions an individual to be repulsed by any kind of violent behaviour. For Alex, who volunteers for the procedure, this means that he is pumped full of a nausea-inducing drug and forced to watch a series of disturbing film clips in which many of the crimes he'd usually enjoy are played alongside images of war and destruction. The experience is unsettling, masterfully captured by Kubrick, who had McDowell's eyes pulled open to such a painful degree the actor ended up having one of his corneas scratched. Nonetheless, the procedure is obviously a lot more uncomfortable for the fictional Alex, who actually has to go through the vomit-inducing ordeal, and worse still, has no choice except to listen to his favourite music during it all, with the result that he won't only be disturbed by the thought of violence in the future, but also by one of his only passive pleasures in life, Beethoven and his Ninth Symphony. That is to say, the Ludovico procedure works. As Alex demonstrates to a panel of scientists, prison authorities and politicians, he's completely incapable of attacking anybody or of defending himself from harm. For a crime-riddled society that prefers quick political solutions over introspective thought, it would appear they've landed on the perfect fix, and with Alex now the innocent in the story, the audience is impelled to go through the unusual experience of having to sympathise with the boy. In particular, as Alex is released from prison, though he undergoes a series of poetic justices at the hands of each of his victims, the world's tiniest violin begins to play, as if to say, yes, we are being asked to feel sorry for him, but only insofar as it serves to reaffirm the satirical quality of the work. Of all this, you can really just give Kubrick his kudos. The tone of the piece is pitch perfect. As ever, he sluiced down the weight of the novel by skimming over some auxiliary themes, such as how sexual violence is often used by men as an oppressive tool against other men, and added some material on Alex's journey through the bureaucracy of the prison system instead. Though in all fairness, the film plot marches along confidently enough in its own way. After most of Alex's victims have punished him, he's rescued by the author whose wife he attacked and is roped into a political scheme to highlight the overreach of a state that has literally poked around inside his head and altered the inner workings of it to better suit its needs. Good intentions notwithstanding, as enlightened to the problem as these political revolutionaries claim to be, they hardly appreciate the extent to which they intend to use Alex for their own purposes, and anyway, prove themselves to have just as much of a vindictive side as any thug, when the author realises it was in fact Alex who murdered his wife, and attempts to drive him to suicide by forcing him to listen to Beethoven's Ninth. 
And so, the film builds to its crescendo in which the disgusting extent that the government looks out for its own interests is shown when they bribe Alex with the promise of a lucrative job, if he agrees to toe the party line when it comes to discussing how they violated him with the press. In the end, Kubrick seems to leave the question of whether it was right to turn the boy into a clockwork orange up to us. In every respect, the technique is a perversion of a person's basic human rights, but so was everything Alex had done. The prison system, both in the film and the real world, hardly serves to encourage a criminal to reform, and anyway, the people who run the complex don't seem to be any better than the delinquents on the opposite side of the social scale. Besides all that, Alex has reverted to his previous miscreant state anyway, and is chuffed at the idea of becoming one of the ultimate droogs, in pay and service to the leadership of Britain. Envisioning a future for himself, it's as selfish and narcissistic as anything he'd imagined before, perhaps not as dangerous to the individuals around him, but certainly a sorry sign for the well-being of society as a whole. It's a gut-wrenching end. You definitely have plenty of reason to laugh, but it's difficult to picture people walking out of the cinema without shaking their heads in disgust in much the same way they would have if they'd seen Kubrick's film Dr. Strangelove at the time of its release. In that film, the United States and the Soviet Union fail so unanimously to overcome their Freudian rivalry that the entire world is ignited under the mushroom clouds of a hundred nuclear bombs, which was a very real danger at the time. The Ludovico technique is a more fictional danger by comparison, but a government's desire to exercise such unwarranted control over its citizens was and is an ever-disturbing threat, and, more to the point, the idea that a country's leaders could be as morally bankrupt as the droogs really is a truth that's become so well known, I think it's actually astonishing how shocking the film makes it feel. Stanley Kubrick, in other words, succeeds in providing a suitably powerful rendition of the story insofar as while it might have stripped some details away and softened the more horrifying aspects, it would also be incorrect to say it didn't add some elements to further explore the novel's main themes. In this respect, as with many of the director's films from 2001 A Space Odyssey to Eyes Wide Shut, A Clockwork Orange has been the source of much critical examination in terms of what visual metaphors may have been woven into the plot. With A Clockwork Orange in particular, Kubrick kept so much of the text that people on set actually sometimes referred to the novel itself rather than to the script, so it's fascinating how the film can provoke such drastically different readings to Anthony Burgess's work. Incidentally, the script that Kubrick himself referenced throughout the production inverted the usual screenplay format whereby dialogue is given more importance than shot descriptions so that the action of any given scene was the primary focus, which you can take to mean his main interest was really in creating compelling imagery rather than utilising verbal communication to hint at the motion picture's main themes. As ever, these visual metaphors as identified by film critics and fans can range from the believable to the outright obscure. For example, there is the use of teeth in the movie. One of Alex's parents keep a false set on their nightstand and when Alex is attacked by a group of elderly people, they each brandish their own in a display of anger, which you can take to mean that the artificial replacements are as much about maintaining the facade of an animalistic threat as much as they might exist to help the elderly eat food. Similarly, I think the most interesting use of imagery revolves around Alex's cufflinks, a set of eyeballs that he wears on each wrist. In a film that never directly speaks about them, they're an unusual prop to draw so much attention to. One theory, as outlined in an extensive article on the writer Julie Kern's website, 
is that they act as an edible symbol. Her reading of it is rather complicated, so I'll just summarise my take on it as informed by her article, which, to be clear, is probably a lot more simple than what she had in mind. In the Greek myth Oedipus, an infant prince was sent away because his father was warned that his son would slay him. As the prince grew older, he also became aware that he was fated to kill his father and so left what he believed to be his homeland behind and met a man who, unbeknownst to him, was his father and killed him in a quarrel. Afterwards he married the queen, had a number of children with her and discovered she was actually his mother whereupon he blinded himself, went into exile, was swallowed by the earth and became a guardian of the land. In Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, as Alex attacks the author, who lives in a place called Home, the man is once again a father figure who Alex forces to watch as he is intercourse with the mother. By doing this, Alex is partaking in a life of crime which will eventually lead to him undergoing the Ludovico technique, thereby metaphorically blinding himself in that he is never able to watch anything violent again and is further emphasised in how he doesn't go back to wearing his eyeball cufflinks once he's released from prison. Then, as with Oedipus, he goes through a type of exile from his old life until he experiences a form of death and becomes a protector of society, not as a spirit like in the myth, but as a delinquent reborn as a government employee. On top of all that, everything is preordained in the myth of Oedipus, which ties in well with the question of whether Alex has a choice in his actions even before he's warped by the Ludovico technique. If you're convinced by this brief analysis, then I recommend you check out Julie's complete examination of the movie, which, once again, is a lot more layered than mine, but you shouldn't stop there. The author of A Clockwork Garange still also represents a doppelganger for Alex, as demonstrated by the sound of his doorbell, which utilises the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Alex's favourite composer. Anyone else come back there are also other interesting aspects of Alex's costume styling, among the iconic imagery of American cinema, it helps him to stand out as one of the most recognisable villains of all time. In general, the costuming of he and the droogs pushed the subversive quality of what Burgess created to an altogether more feminine level, with some of the droogs wearing lipstick and Alex himself sporting that strange spider-lashed eye. It's been said that this represents the two sides of his modern character, the barbaric, murderous subconscious and the civilised outward personality that we are taught to portray, which would certainly line up with the teams in Kubrick's other work. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. In particular, I've seen Alex's eye described as looking like barbed wire, but to me, it brings to mind the image of a Venus flytrap. Once you're caught in that dark pool between the lashes, you're probably going to get eaten up. Furthermore, Alex isn't the only one who sports unusual clothing items. His fellow droogs wear other mutilated body parts, such as bloody nipples on one of them and what appear to be the severed private parts of a woman on another, which on one level highlights their sadistic natures, but also ties in with the overall motif of the people in a clockwork orange being broken down into components separate from themselves. Alex's parents can be disassembled into that set of false teeth and ridiculous coloured wigs, for example, and artwork throughout the film focuses on aspects of the human form in grotesque and fetishistic ways, such that individuals seem to only exist as an assembly of organs and limbs. Beyond that, regarding the eyes in particular, I am also curious as to why one of them is featured so prominently in the triangle of the film's poster design, 
which as many a stoner have pointed out, looks a lot like the classic symbol for an all-seeing eye and would point to the possibility of some kind of Illuminati message within the plot. On this point, later in life, Kubrick would show an interest in Illuminati-type conspiracy stories, with his film Eyes Wide Shut being an obvious example, so the possible inclusion of such imagery here does have some merit. But just so there's no misunderstanding, I myself don't believe there is any kind of new world order controlling the governments of the world, or that Kubrick was trying to direct attention to the actual existence of such a thing. The modern idea of the Illuminati began in the 1960s. It started life as a prank on the part of Robert Anton Wilson, who composed a series of letters that laid out the existence of the organisation, got them published in Playboy magazine, then subsequently sent in another series of letters that denied the Illuminati's existence, all with the intent of creating anarchy in society as outlined by the tenets of a counterculture collective he was a part of known as the Discordians. When the letters got attention from Playboy magazine's large reader base, the concept took on a life of its own and was egged on further still by a series of satirical books Wilson wrote in the 1970s called the Illuminati Trilogy, which attributed critical world events such as the assassination of JFK to the massive Illuminati conspiracy. As such, I don't tend to enjoy readings of the film that take the Illuminati's existence as a given but I do think it's fairly obvious Kubrick had a distrust of authority, as evidenced by a quote from his widow in which she said he would advise anybody to avoid associating with people who are in power. So in this way, at a bare minimum, if there is Illuminati imagery in the film, maybe Kubrick utilised it to show that Alex's fate was beyond his control, sometimes being a tool of the system, and at other times a victim of it. To be sure, it would be a comfortable fit with Anthony Burgess's vague sense that there is an unknown force behind major social changes, and it would show how Alex was tied to the corrupt politicians long before he underwent the Ludovico procedure. Not in any literal way, but as a lawless tug who happens to contribute to the oppressive sense of fear that the politicians of Britain benefit from, he is a part of a system that sustains the reactionary form of government. The cufflinks and disrespect could be an image that show how his eyes have always been open to the reality that, as he says, the world is made up of two camps of people, with one group doing the knifing, and the other getting knifed. Today, it remains a possibility that human beings do not have any free will. As contemporary scanning technology shows, it could be the case that decisions are made in our brains long before our conscious selves have resolved what to do. I'm a writer, not a neuroscientist, so I don't pretend to have any expertise on the subject beyond a few news articles I've glanced at over the years. But in regards to A Clockwork Orange, it's an interesting one to consider because when you apply it to each version of the story, it seems to affect them in different ways. By that I mean, in the case of Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork, the idea is really just absorbed by the plot. Beyond the chaplain's token effort at moralising, the possibility that Alex could act in an ethical manner that the prison system could be used to encourage reform, that the Ludovico technique might be a worse atrocity than anything Alex has done, or that the leaders of our society are any better than droogs, are all just elements in the acts of a crime and punishment saga to be lampooned. No moral solution is sincerely put forward, so by saying that free will doesn't exist anyway, you're really just providing more meat for the extremely biting satire. In the case of the novel, though, I think it's possible that if the theory was proven true, then that bite would actually become quite toothless. Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange ends with the same question with which it began. 
what's it going to be then? Throughout the novel, Alex has chosen the most immoral option on every occasion it's been presented to him. But now as the book reaches its end, at the ripe old age of 18, he has begun to feel meaner as he describes it, more interested in hoarding money than he is in antisocial violence. On a certain level, he started to realise he hasn't constructed anything with his life, only destroyed, especially when compared to the likes of one of his favourite composers, Wolfgang Amadeus, who by his age had already written concertos, symphonies and operas. Moreover, he's begun to feel a strange romantic urge towards creation. No longer is he drawn to the bombastic devastation he hears in Beethoven, now he prefers to listen to love songs and even carries a picture of a child in his wallet, tickled by the idea of having his own. When he runs into a fellow Druk who has already settled down, he envisions what a more peaceful life could be like when, one day, he might sire a son who he'll lecture on the importance of goodness and who in turn will ignore the advice and commit yet worse crimes than his father did. Violence is simply a trait of the young. It's the natural course of life so far as Alex can see, and even if he hasn't completely left his old ways behind, he's no more immune to the contented vision of growing away from all that drama than anybody else is. What this means is that having suffered through the consequences of his adolescent ways, Alex is truly capable of choosing good, and now that he is free of government tampering, he will be allowed to pursue it in a purely human way. Over the years, there has been some confusion over the origins of this ending, with some people suggesting it was only written due to a request from Burgess's British publisher. Of this belief, Burgess himself was adamant that it was not the case and pointed to the structure of the novel to prove how it was obviously planned from the beginning. The book is broken up into three sections with seven chapters in each, which, in Burgess's explanation, adds up to the number 21, the age a boy traditionally becomes a man. On the topic of this structure, I do think it's a bit of a gimmick, especially given that Alex is 18 at the end of the story, not 21, though I am inclined to take Burgess at his word, if only because it would be strange to make the final section of such a symmetrical novel one chapter shorter than the rest. What's more, I think the belief that it's an unnecessary chapter comes more from the fact that it would have been a weak ending for Stanley Kubrick's motion picture and nothing to do with whether it works in the context of the book where it actually seems less out of place thanks to some major motifs that were omitted from the movie altogether, namely the use of foreshadowing, premonitions and dreams. For instance, there is the vision Alex and his father share that he will be betrayed by his fellow droogs. In a way, you could take this to mean his future is on a mechanical path even before he's made a victim of the Ludovico technique, but with the foreknowledge of the attack, you can also take it to mean that Alex has been given the option to choose a more civilised direction in life. Alex also picks up some verbal traits from his post-correction officer that on one level points to the essence of his crimes as akin to that of an authority figure, but also clues us into the possibility that he has already begun to grow up. When Alex is in prison and he receives word that one of his fellow droogs has been killed, he remarks that he wasn't very surprised to hear it, and that really, it seemed like fate, as if they always knew that the kind of delinquency they were engaged in just wasn't a sustainable way of living. In addition, when Alex is at his lowest and succumbs to drinking the milk laced with the hallucinogenic drug he so loads, he experiences a vision where he sees God, but comes back down from it more depressed than ever, because, of course, it was just an artificial vision, not a real life-altering change such as one he will go through by genuinely suffering. 
And, as ever, for those of you interested in phallic imagery, there is the unusual dream in which Alex plays with an orchestra and his woodwind instrument is actually a protrusion of his body, a large bassoon that grows out of his stomach and that makes him laugh and disrupt the orchestra's performance when he blows into it. Of this utterly bizarre sequence, I can only take from it that the same drive Alex has to destroy with his instrument could instead be put toward producing something beautiful, which, when played in concert with the rest of humanity, would help to create a harmonious world in which each person is a part of something larger than themselves. So, whereas Kubrick's version questions the concept of free will by examining an infinitely evil character who will never, ever choose good, Burgess does so with one who has always had the potential to be good, which, overall, has the counterintuitive effect of making the more vicious take on Alex a more redeemable one than the tamer Alex of the movie. More importantly, for society as a whole, whereas Kubrick satirises any possible answer to the problem of evil as much as he does the problem itself, Burgess actually offers up a solution, or at least a heartfelt beseechment for the reader to consider, in that of the unifying power of love. Whether it be love of a god or love for our fellow man, it's a feeling that he opines the lack of throughout the text, both in Alex's desperation to experience the feeling with the god drug, and in the disgust of the prison chaplain, who recognises the perversion of the Ludovico technique and realises that society would be better off if only it could start treating its outcasts and downtrodden as actual humans. Further to that, there is the reality that Alex is essentially a fictionalised version of the men who assaulted Burgess's pregnant wife, and by allowing Alex the chance to be truly good, he is in a respect granting all evildoers of the world the possibility that they too could be capable of changing their ways. Now, all of this does somewhat temper the farcical aspect of Burgess's version, but it at least gets one last dig in on itself when Alex considers the benefit of being good and laughs it off as just another load of shit, even as he moves towards the ideal. This does leave us with the problem of Burgess's work being made redundant if it's ever definitively proven that we as a species don't have any free will. Even so, Though at the time of Burgess writing A Clockwork Orange, I can't say whether the progenitors of neuroscience would have believed that they could ever seriously study whether there was a deterministic quality to our mental processes. I do know that the question is probably a bit older than that of the modern scientific method, and that Burgess himself was most likely aware of it. During the Reformation period in Europe, many new religious organisations branched off from the Catholic Church. One of the questions that divided them was that if God was omniscient, then wouldn't that mean he already knows who's going to commit a sin? For the new religions, that would mean that a bad person was always going to do the bad thing, but for the Catholics, it still remained a matter of free will and choice. Anthony Burgess was raised Catholic. At times he described himself as an unbeliever or a lapsed Catholic, but regardless, he took a great amount of interest in the fate and it's hard not to see that interest show in his version of A Clockwork Orange. Asked about his religious views at the end of his life, he said, Christ used the term the kingdom of heaven. It is a metaphor. I don't think it refers to a real location. I think it is a state of being in which one has become aware of the nature of choice, and one is choosing the good because one knows what good is. Further to that, in another interview, Burgess stated that the novels he'd written are really all medieval Catholic in their thinking, and that people just don't want that today. All of this is to say, I don't think this means Burgess's ending makes it a weaker story than Kubrick's, only a weaker satire. For however much it addresses the mechanistic aspect of our lives, it leans towards the concept of free will as a truth, and as such, 
lets its protagonist live in a world that from the very beginning gives him the ability to choose a more righteous life and creates a narrative that will push him toward doing just that. On a more personal note, for me this isn't negated by the idea that we don't have any free will, because even if that's the case we need to act like we do anyway, but each to their own in that respect. Meanwhile, with his film, Kubrick didn't really allow for the possibility of choice to be considered in any earnest manner, and as such, was correct in thinking the original ending would have felt tacked on once he removed each of the plot elements that led to it. All told, I do think Kubrick's version has a much bigger impact on the viewer and a more devastating message overall, which goes a long way to explaining the greater amount of controversy the film experienced, though as I suggested before, I think that's as much down to the increased influence of cinema on the masses as it has to do with their lack of interest in Catholic philosophy. On this point, it's funny when you consider the fact that the novel, which includes far more depraved scenes of assault on both children and the elderly, didn't actually cause much of an uproar at the time it was published. Of the mainstream critics in the United Kingdom, for example, many newspapers recognised it as offering a unique perspective, and, at the very least, was an entertaining read. Upon the release of Kubrick's film, though, a wave of outrage overwhelmed the country. Teenagers across the UK had supposedly taken to committing a number of copycat crimes. As is typical of such moral panic, there was little in the way of verifiable evidence that any incident could be linked to the film, but that hardly stopped the newspapers who had previously given the book admiring reviews from spreading such tales. Today the question of whether a piece of media can be the source of antisocial behaviour has apparently been answered in a series of studies that showed even violent video games don't have that power. No matter how many times the supposed problem is trotted out, it's essentially just become redundant. But it's a fitting one to investigate in the case of A Clockwork Orange, because the story itself provides some commentary on the subject through Alex's violent outbursts as inspired by classical music, and because the real-world reaction to the subject matter was as much of a ridiculous circus as anything portrayed throughout either version. Back then, even without the evidence of psychological studies, Kubrick defended the film by saying that people cannot be made to do things which are at odds with their natures. Still, there was a small amount of irony in his statement given that he would eventually have a clockwork orange pulled from theatres when the life of his family was threatened, presumably spurred on by another form of powerful media, the self-righteous newspapers themselves. But that's neither here nor there. After the film swept across the world, A Clockwork Orange became a brand name for delinquency and a book that schools and libraries felt inclined to react to in a standard way for such community institutions, with little regard to rational thinking. The novel was banned in a small handful of places, thereby labelling it as a taboo young adults should not read, thereby making it something young adults would want to read, and subsequently giving aspiring literary rebels the reassurance that the written word hadn't lost the power to shock and offend. Suffice it to say, though, this wildfire of conservative reaction just wouldn't have sparked off if it had never been turned into a film and might not have become so intense if it hadn't been a big-name director such as Stanley Kubrick at the helm. Of all this, the author appears to have taken it in his stride, but only barely. A Clockwork Orange, as it happens, was written in a mere three weeks. Anthony Burgess had been diagnosed with a brain tumour and so committed himself to writing a number of short novels in an effort to leave some sort of mark on the world before he died. Of this circumstance, I can only imagine he wanted to complete ideas he thought to be important, but also to balance them with what could actually be achieved in what he believed would be a short time. 
In this regard, I do think he struck upon an extraordinary well of inspiration when it came to writing A Clockwork Orange and that it is one of the most provocative and startlingly original books of the 20th century. The personal revelation for the material is heard loud and clear throughout the text as Burgess confronts a very real type of monster that practically destroyed his and his wife's life. The Natsat language itself was utilised towards a number of fascinating literary ends, which, though it was mostly transcribed to the screen verbatim, was robbed of much of its original point due to the fact that Stanley Kubrick chose to portray or omit incidents that the language was constructed to obscure. Of that film, Malcolm McDowell's performance is about as good as acting gets, but he was still ridiculously old for the part even after Kubrick aged up the character, which is to say, the nature of the novel as a purely textual work meant that Burgess was better able to explore the linguistic theories and to capture a fleeting age of youth that Hollywood has rarely even attempted to portray in a realistic manner. In spite of that, in a way the book could never be as shocking as Kubrick's more punk rock portrayal of Alex and his kind, but it's a worthy attempt at creating something divine, even if Burgess became frustrated that thanks to the film it would become his most popular book and, as far as he was concerned, a fairly misunderstood one. That is, as the years would go on, he was disappointed that Christian scholars didn't think the story was relevant to the notions of their fate. Burgess had apparently wanted Kubrick to better communicate to the world the moral questions that the story brought up, and when the director showed little interest in telling people what they were supposed to take from it all, the two of them fell out as a result. At any rate, Burgess stated in his biography for D.H. Lawrence that the book was always in danger of being misunderstood and so simply shouldn't have been written, and that it was too didactic to be considered an actual work of art besides. Of these protests though, I think that he was really playing the heel, given that he still got around to writing a musical version of the story in which a parody of Stanley Kubrick appears before being kicked off stage. Which is all to say, though Burgess apparently felt like any of his other books should have been more popular than this worthwhile little shocker, as Time magazine described it, he was clearly impassioned by what message A Clockwork Orange was supposed to get across. It's very simple, I, I was brought up as a Catholic in the north of England and uh, I was brought up to accept the, uh, the doctrine of original sin, which I still accept uh, under, under various other nominal guises. I think that man is probably inherently bad or inherently antisocial. And, um, I, but get in a sense, man's, uh, man's original sin is a product of his own will. He willed it himself. And by a curious paradox, this will is rather, a rather glorious thing to possess. There's, a, there's a, a terrible statement made by St. Augustine which all Christians like to forget. But what he said about the fall, the fall of Adam, was this. Uh, oh, happy fault, since it produced so great a redeemer. In other words, the Orthodox Christian must feel the fall from grace, the fall from the Garden of Eden was a good thing, because it produced Christ. And it's, it's a good thing on a, on a secular level because it indicated man's desire to make his own life, to, 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 to work his will, to make mistakes, and um, in the process of making mistakes, produce as kind of byproducts things like art and beauty and the like. Out of this powerful libido of Alex, for instance, in the book and in the film, uh, there is also cognate with it uh, a realization of the beauty of music, the beauty of the world, the beauty of language. Alex is a man in that he is violent, as men are. He, 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 he loves beauty and he loves language. And these three things go all together.
if you produce a, a human being without the will to do evil, the abuse of a human being without the will to do anything, and certainly not the will to create. So this is not, in my view, a gloomy view of man at all. It's, it's a fairly realistic view of what man is like. And the book and also the film represent a kind of fabulous treatment of um, this human condition. It is not the future, really. It can be the future, if you will. It's just a period of time which is at a slant to real time. I'd like to end this episode by speaking a little more about Kubrick and Burgess's relationship with one another, which was, so far as I can tell, as contentious as many of the others Kubrick would have with the authors he enlisted. Kubrick, in the case of A Clockwork Orange, wrote the screenplay for the motion picture alone. He only phoned Burgess once in the course of making the film and the subject of the conversation had nothing to do with the book. Burgess, for his part, would go on to voice his opinion that the film was indeed a more pornographic version of his work, but before they fell out over the supposed Christian merits of the story, they apparently went on to gain some respect for one another, given that Kubrick asked Burgess to write a novel about Napoleon on which they could base a screenplay. That novel, according to Kubrick, turned out to be something he couldn't turn into a film, but I for one intend to read it if only to enjoy a deeper understanding of both the writer and film director's minds. If you liked what you just heard, please go to YouTube and search for Simon's channel, Content Lit, and watch his video essays on other books that would inspire Kubrick as well as covering some of the best literature of the 20th century. We hope to do more with Simon in the future. Next up, do you want to be on the show? We are asking you, our listeners, to tell us in under five minutes what you think of Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange what impact it had on you, and just about anything that you would like to share about the film. You may not even like it as much as his other films. You may not even like it at all, but we still do want to hear from you. So just record your voice into the voice recorder on your phone, and then send it to us at Kubrick's Universe. You can find our email in the show notes at Kubrick's Universe on Facebook, or just search Kubrick's Universe on the web. The last date for entries is March 31st, 2022. Let's hear what you got. This episode, as ever, was produced by Stephen Rigg, and I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. Tell your PM I said hi. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.